Well, let's get right into our study today. This will be part two of a study we're doing on Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 24 or 25. And we are seeking to answer the question of whether or not this section of the letter to the Romans is Paul's description of the normal Christian life. In other words, when Paul says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin, is Paul speaking of his own autobiographical struggle with sin? Is he modeling for us the normal Christian experience? When he says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Is that Paul prescribing to you, the or offering even you, to the consolation that your internal struggle with sin is normative? It's just the way it is for the average Christian. Or is Paul speaking of something else? Is Paul addressing another issue within the context of the letter to the Romans? Well, that is our quest. That's what we're seeking to answer. And so we began part one by looking at uh, the history of the social, theological, and background of this letter. Uh, And so just by a way of brief review, let me keep that context by reminding you that Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, to a church that he did not found, by the way. He did not found this church. He did not plant this church. It was a church that was um, more than likely uh, came about as a result of uh, Christians who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Uh, or people who were in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost, who became Christians as a result of Peter's preaching, were filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, received all the instruction that they could, and then went back to Rome. Both Jewish Christians and probably Jewish converts, uh, Gentile converts to Judaism, who are now both Christians, both the Gentile converts to Judaism and those Jews who were in Jerusalem together, now Christians, go back to Rome. And uh, the emperor Claudius and uh, uh, kicks out the Jews in A.D. 49, I think it was. And uh, he didn't ask whether or not you were a, a Jewish Christian. He just, if you were of Jewish heritage, you had to leave Rome. Later, when they were allowed to return, they found that the church had become largely Gentile. And so there's a separation forming in the uh, Roman churches. Probably a a network of uh, house churches. Uh, But there's a separation occurring now because the question is coming up, as it did for the apostles themselves, is that how, how is it? What is the basis? On what basis are the Gentiles now to be included into the people of God? 
It wasn't until Acts chapter 10 when Peter goes to Cornelius, a Roman official in his household, and begins to preach Christ to them. By the way, he did not preach the law to Cornelius. You can find that in Acts chapter 10. You'll find nowhere that Peter came preaching the law. But what he did preach is Christ. And as he preached Christ to these Gentile uh, audience, the Spirit fell, and they began to speak with other tongues. They began to, to display the fact that they had been given the gift of the Spirit. And Peter uses that experience, that event, in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council to argue for the fact that if the Gentiles have been given the Spirit, that we should, the Jews should not put in on them any further burden of the law, but that clearly that they have been accepted by God by virtue and evidence of the fact that they are uh, have been given the Spirit. So, the question arises then in Rome some years later as to whether or not there should be two separate churches. A Jewish church where they can freely practice some of their Jewish heritage as far as keeping the Sabbath or not, certain dietary laws, and so on where the Gentile churches did not want to practice those. So maybe there should be two separate churches. But then, ultimately, the question would come up again, whether or not a Gentile was welcome in a Jewish church, and whether a Jew was welcome in a Gentile church. And that kind of separation was abhorrent to the Apostle Paul. It was abhorrent because inherent in the gospel is the fact that the gospel is to one uh, is a creation of a new people of God. It is God's eternal purpose. Paul is very clear about this, especially in his letter to the Ephesians in that region, that God's purpose is to create a people, not just to save individuals, as important as that is, but to create a people for his own glory, who reflect his glory, reflect his character, and display his uh, character in their relationships with one another as one new people of God in Christ. So there's not two peoples of God. There are not two plans of salvation. There are not two covenants. There is one gospel and one people of God. And so Paul is rather exercised in his desire to communicate to the Christians in Rome the nature and character of the gospel and the community that it creates, that that gospel creates, is a community of unity of the Spirit, not unity grounded in ethnic traditions, either pagan or Jewish, nor a unity grounded in uh, ethnic uh, works of the law in which the Jews, um, excuse me, the Gentiles are required to take on in order to be named among the people of God. 
And so the question, the answer to the question as to on what basis are the Gentiles to be included into the people of God is by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Christ as affected by the Spirit. And so what marks out the new people of God in which there is no Jew or Gentile, no male or female, no um, free or bond, what marks out the people of God from the pagan world around them is the presence of the Spirit within and among the community. It is the Spirit, no longer the law, that serves as the chief marker for the people of God. Now, Paul is very clear in his letter to the Romans, later in Romans 14 and 15, that the, the Jews, certain Jews who want to keep a Sabbath or, or keep an elevated day above another day, they're, they're welcome to do that. And if they want to not eat certain kind of meats that have been sacrificed idols, they're welcome to do that as well. But they are not welcome to impose that as a standard for entry into the people of God. Now this is, as you can see, is very important. And the reason it's important to you is because as a Christian, you are going to be faced with repeatedly teachings in what some artificial standard is put up that tells you that this is, this is the way that you enter the people of God or that you stay in the people of God. And so you want to be careful of that. You want to be well equipped to answer that kind of nonsense because it's still occurring today. I told you that the, the tithing principle of telling people, telling Christians today that they're still under Malachi chapter 3 and the blessing and curse of, the, of Malachi 3 regarding the tithe is the most popular, the most heinous, the most exploitive form of setting an artificial standard that God does not set under the new covenant for entrance into or the ability to stay within the people of God, the community. So, while justification and reconciliation is individual, our individual salvation occurs within the greater context of inclusion into the people of God by the Spirit. So the great question following Pentecost was how, in fact, the Gentiles are included into the people of God. And then we just said that the chief marker is the gift of the Spirit, not the law. And I can't stress this enough. Because this great question of on what basis is a person included within the people of God, how do you get in and how do you stay in, is something that every generation of Christians are going to be faced with. Untold millions of Christians throughout the ages, perhaps billions of Christians throughout the ages, have been given these artificial standards by the cunning scheming of wicked men and have lived under that bondage most, if not all, of their life. This was a big issue in the medieval theology that led to the Reformation. 
So that being a review of the historical background as to why Paul is even writing this letter, he is writing to Jews and Gentiles, and he's telling them that they are equally disadvantaged under sin. And I'm convinced that that is Paul's point in our text, Romans 7, 7 through 24. He's pointing out that a Jew is equally disadvantaged under the law in sin without the Spirit. And Gentiles are equally disadvantaged in sin without the law. That sin is the problem. The law is not the problem. The law is just, holy, and good. It's sin that's the problem. And while the law can expose sin, it can certainly reveal sin. It cannot offer a remedy. Nor should it be used as a means of of, uh, setting a standard by which you either enter the people of God or you stay in the people of God. By By the way, most legalism today is tied to um, how do you stay in the people of God? How do you stay in the church? Um, I think Gordon Fee was right, and I quoted him last time, when he said that the average Christian believes that they are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Theoretically, intellectually, but experientially, Most Christians live as if they're under law, under some kind of rules. And the reason for that is because of this kind of teaching. The teaching that tells people that texts like Romans chapter 7 is the normal Christian life. That you're still the struggle under under law. You're still the struggle under the flesh and, and sin. Now, is there a Christian struggle? Yes, there is some groaning that goes on. We are not fully redeemed yet. We are not speaking here or advocating some kind of over-realized eschatology. We know that there is still uh, the, the deeds of the body that we are to mortify, but we do it not by looking to the law, but by walking in the Spirit. And we'll talk about that more as we go down through this series. Okay, so that now brings us back to our text. And today we're going to consider the greater context. The first rule of effective Bible study is context. Study is context. In fact, as my uh, mentor in Bible college told me, the first rule of context is that context rules. (laughs) So we've already looked at the historic, social, and theological context. Now let's look at the biblical context. And to do that, the the context that immediately brackets our text is Romans 7, 1 through 6. Yes. On one side, and Romans 8, 1 through 4. And I don't know that we'll get to Romans 8, 1 through 4 today, but we'll look at Romans 7, 1 through 6 today as the immediate bookend for our text of Romans 7, 7 through 24. So let's look at that text. Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. 6. Okay. 
Quote, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. End quote. Wow. What a great text. What a great context. Let's just make a few quick observations here. First of all, Paul says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law. So, who is Paul speaking to? He's speaking to those who know the law. Who is it in this community divide between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians? Which of those two communities knows the law. That would be, of course, the Jewish Christians. Now, Gentiles certainly can be familiar with the law, and he may be addressing both parties, but it's likely that he is addressing the Jewish Christians in this case. And I say that for a couple reasons. One, in Romans 2, 17 through 29, which I won't read, he does address the Jews in the law, Romans two seventeen through 29. In fact, he starts out by saying, Now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So these are Jewish people who are very proud of the fact that they have the law as their heritage. Uh, Jewish Christians who are very proud of that fact. But Paul's going to humble them a little bit. And when he asks them in verse 21, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles 
because of you. So there's, there is a faction of people in his audience to whom he is writing that are specifically Jewish Christians. So Paul's once again, as he did in Romans chapter 2, and he does also in Romans chapter 3, he is addressing Jewish Christians here. Now it's not to say that Gentile Christians don't benefit from this instruction, but he he's speaking to those who know the law, he says. Okay, he's speaking of a simple but very effective analogy. An analogy that he takes from marriage. Now, we should note carefully that this is a relational analogy. Very important. He's using an analogy from marriage. A relational analogy. We are reminded from time to time, incidentally, as we read through uh, scripture, that God is a relational God. The Trinity our triune God is a relational community within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God relates to you and I under the new covenant in a relational manner. God is not treating us in a transactional manner. I'll do this, you do that, and all will be well. That was the old covenant. And all wasn't well. Remember <laughs> that we can't approach God on the basis of law and expect to have it work out very well. God is a relational God. Paul is using a relational analogy here. He could have used a, an analogy from contract law, but it is no accident that the Holy Spirit inspired him to use a relational marriage analogy. Now, let me just give you a, a quick bit of exegesis to help affirm what I'm saying here about that. Very powerful, very uh, moving even to consider what Paul is saying here. Because um, it's not just a cold, sterile analogy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says this to them, quote, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I, am prom I promise you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ for if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. End quote. A better translation might be, uh, for someone comes to you and preaches another Jesus. In other words, another suitor. Paul is relating to the Corinthians in the analogy that they are a betrothed bride who's awaiting their groom, and they are being drawn away, lured away to another suitor, another Jesus, quote, end quote. I've said before, and I'll say it again, that's why we have to be really careful about these alternative Jesus that are so out there in our society today, uh, especially in movies like 
the, the chosen and other forms of art and artwork, other forms of storytelling and so on that is uh, presenting another Jesus. It's just, the devil is cunning if he's nothing else and he's consistent and he is constantly trying to sell us another Jesus. My point here though, to back up, is that Paul is using an analogy from marriage, very precious. And you'll see why in just a moment. Okay. So Paul is saying to us in this analogy, verse 4, So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law. So just as when the husband dies, a woman is now a widow and she's released from the legal obligation to her husband. Paul is drawing that parallel now and saying, So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. That's what happened. You died to the law through the body of Christ for the purpose that you might belong to another. Now, Pause here with me and consider the marriage analogy. One of the beautiful things about a wedding ceremony is the how each, the bride and the groom, are committing themselves to each other and what? Forsaking all others. This is very important because Paul's using this marriage analogy in this um, incident for a very specific reason. And we're beginning to see it now. So when he says, we have died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, you have to die to the law, he says, to belong to Christ. You can't have it both ways. You can't belong to the law. You can't look to the law, either for salvation or sanctification or to relate to God on the basis of law. You can't do that and belong to Christ. Now that sounds a little um, harsh, maybe, or a little dramatic, maybe, especially if you like wearing the Ten Commandments around your neck. But Paul is making it very clear in the letter to the Galatians that you who are seeking to... Uh, be justified by law, have actually alienated yourself from Christ. Paul makes it vividly clear in Galatians that you cannot have both ways. You cannot seek to be justified by law or relate to God on the basis of law and still be in Christ, still be anything other than um, alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace, he says in Galatians. So Paul's saying it here too, to the Romans. He's making it vividly clear that it's one or the other. When you leave the uh, wedding chapel, you've made a commitment to your spouse. You have forsaken all others and you've done that publicly. And now you are devoted. You are committed. And if you were a widow or a widower, You've been fully released from your previous spouse. You also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. 
To whom? To him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. This continues the analogy. Just as a couple are joined together in wedlock and then bear fruit for God and children, so we are to bear fruit for God in good deeds and displaying his holiness and his character in our life. That's why, <laughs> this is why this is so, this study is so important. Because if you're spending your time laboring in the flesh, under law, struggling with sin, you aren't bearing much fruit. What we want is a life that bears fruit for God. Fruit, what kind of fruit? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, meekness, temperance, faith. The things for which there is no law, against which there is no law. Okay. Now note carefully when he says, verse 5, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, stop there, for when we were, clearly Paul is speaking in the past tense, isn't he? For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us. So, he is he's speaking to Jewish Christians, and he's saying, when you were in the realm of the flesh... Past tense. In other words, you are no longer in the realm of the flesh. Well, what realm are you in if you're not in the realm of the flesh? I hear people say this from time to time. Good Christian people say, well, I was in the flesh on that day, and so I had a bad day. But that's not how it works. Let me show you what I mean. Romans 8, 9 says it this way. Speaking to Christians... He says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Now, the important thing to grasp here, beloved, is that this is absolute. You don't move between the flesh and the Spirit. You are in one realm or the other. Colossians tells us that God has acted in such a way to transfer us from the domain of Satan, the world, law, sin, flesh, and into the kingdom of his dear son. And that's not, uh, the, the gates are closed after that. The sea is, is, that was parted has been closed back up. You've landed on the shore and the boats have been burned. There's nowhere to go but forward. So, by virtue of your regenerate status, a work of grace by the Spirit, so that you are now born of the Spirit, you're a regenerate person, you are no longer in the realm of the flesh. But I could repeat that 20 or 30 times, and I, I hope that you will meditate on this. I hope you will underline that in your Bible, Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, lives in you. And then he concludes, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. There again, we're having it affirmed that the primary, almost singular indicator that you are in Christ is 
the presence of his spirit within you. That you belong to the people of God is marked by the fact that you have the spirit of Christ. Okay, so you can't have it both ways. We can't say when we were in the realm of the flesh and then go forward into Romans 7.14 and say, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. You can't have it both ways. So there's two different states here that Paul is speaking of, very important in our study. When we were in the realm of the flesh, he speaks of the Christian as being in past tense there. But he's speaking in the present tense in Romans 7, 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So it's clearly evident that Paul is not speaking in Romans 7, 14 of the Christian experience. He's speaking of some experience, but it's not the Christian experience because we are not unspiritual. To be spiritual simply means that we have the Spirit dwelling within us. We live and walk by the Spirit. And that's not something that comes and goes either, beloved. I mean, you can be, you need to be filled with the Spirit. It's a command. Be ye filled with the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit never leaves you. That portion of Psalm 51 where David prays, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, that doesn't belong to you under the New Covenant. That was David praying that in Psalm 51 that God would not remove his anointing as king. Take not thy Spirit from me. That doesn't apply to you under the New Covenant. God has given you the gift of the Spirit, and it is irrevocable. Period. There's never a moment, if you are in Christ, that you do not have the Spirit. He doesn't come and go. I've heard people say, Oh boy, you know, I sinned one day and I just felt the Holy Spirit leave me. No, no. You may grieve the Spirit. You may quench the Spirit. And those are serious things. But you never lose the fellowship of the Spirit. Okay. When we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us. Now, where have we heard that? Once again, in Romans 7, 8, he says, our text says, But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So he was saying, that's a past tense status. I don't want to belabor this too much and confuse you, but, but let's get clear here that Paul is saying in the first six verses of Romans 7 that if most people who believe that the balance of that chapter is the normal Christian life, if they just read this immediate context, they couldn't believe that. They couldn't adhere to that. They wouldn't listen to that kind of teaching. The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us. That is a past tense. Okay. We were once there. And then verse 5, he says, We bore fruit for death. 
instead of bearing fruit for God, when we were in the flesh, when we were under law, when we were struggling as a slave to sin, the only fruit we bore was fruit for death. It's a miserable existence. No wonder Paul said, if without the bodily resurrection in 1 Corinthians, he says, without the bodily resurrection, we might as well eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If all we have is hope in this life, we are in the most miserable of men, he said. No, without the Spirit, we don't have hope. And without hope, being religious is no fun. <laughs> I mean... The caricature of a religious person who's just a killjoy, who's just miserable, who walks around with a sad face and a gaunt look, trying to appear all externally pious, just as the Pharisees often did, is no way to live. God is not impressed. Okay. But now... But now, he says in verse 6, here's the, here's the beautiful point. But now, that was then, this is now, we were once in the realm of the flesh, but now by dying to what once bound us. What bound us? The law. The law. We died to the law. It once bound us. We were bound by the flesh now, I recognize, again, he's speaking to Jews here. If you are a Gentile, which there's many of them, <laughs> I am one. I was not under the law before I came to Christ. I knew nothing of the law. It was not part of my ethnic heritage. It wasn't part of my religious heritage. But if you were raised in the Jewish culture, if you were raised as a Jew, you were very familiar with the law. But for us to have entered the people of God, for us to have become members of the people of God, even as Gentiles, as God-fearing Gentiles, we would have had to come under the law. Because at that time, before Christ, that was the way that you entered the people of God, through circumcision and then obedience to the works of the law. And that was a binding obligation. But since we've been free from what once bound us, we are now released from the law. I don't know how we can say that clearer. You can't be released from the law and then think that the balance of this chapter, verses 7 through 24, is somehow a normal Christian experience. Because this person, in verses 7 through 24, is anything but released from the law. This person is struggling with the law, struggling with sin, struggling with his flesh. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, and here comes the Greek purpose clause, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code or the letter. In the new way of the Spirit. 
The Spirit has replaced Torah. Torah is the Jewish term for the first five books of the Bible, the law. So the Spirit has replaced the role of Torah in the heart and mind and life of the people of God. Why is that? Because Pentecost was the second giving of the law. Pentecost was an agricultural celebration, but it was also a remembrance when the law was given at Mount Sinai. And it's no accident that God chose Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, to pour out the Spirit upon the church. Because it was by the Spirit that the law is now written on minds and on hearts. No longer on tablets of stone. No longer the written code. No longer letter upon letter, precept upon precept but upon the hearts and minds of God's new covenant people in which they have a new nature. God has removed the stony heart and replaced it with a fleshly heart so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So it's very clear. These are contrasts. The Bible teaches by contrasts. So we have an old way and a new way here. So let's just look at this in summary, real briefly. We have died to the law, we've been released from the law, so that we may now serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the letter. Death, in, in chapter 6, verses, verse 14, we read, let me see here, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Let me repeat that. Chapter 6, verse 14. We'll get to that greater context in another episode. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. So we've died to the law. We've died to sin. Sin is no longer your master. Very clear. I don't know how much clearer that can be. Sin is no longer your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. But Paul says in Romans 7, 14, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am under unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. You can't have it both ways, folks. Those who teach that Romans 7, 7 through 24 is the normal Christian life and the normal representation of the normal Christian struggle... Um, and I've heard some very, otherwise very good teachers teach this. And it's shocking to me, <laughs> because as you can see already, all you have to do is look at Romans 6, 7, and 8 as a unit, and you can't, you can't teach that. You can't justify that. You are not under law, but under grace. You're not enslaved. Sin and the law, sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. So what does this contextual study tell us about our text, 7, 7 through 25? It tells us that we are not enslaved to sin. 
even though the person of whom Paul is addressing in our text is enslaved to sin. We just read it. He's sold as a slave to sin. Paul is saying in 6.2, 6.14, and 6.18 that we are not uh, enslaved. Sin is not our master. We have died to two things, sin and the law. So, that on that basis alone, with that much study done already, we can easily conclude biblically that Romans 7, 7 through 24 cannot be the prescription for the normal Christian experience. We and verse six, 16, uh, verse chapter 6, excuse me, 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Let me read that again. Chapter 6, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. You see the contrast there? Mark down Romans six twenty-two. And then right next to it, Romans seven fourteen, And look at those two verses. And you'll see they can't be speaking of the same person. Remember, you're either in the realm of the flesh or the realm of the spirit. You're either under law or under grace. And you're not under both. Let me illustrate real briefly, and then we'll be done. Imagine being purchased from the slave market. Just... As, as abhorrent as that is, even the, the, the thought of slavery itself is abhorrent, I realize, socially speaking. I'm not being very socially correct at this point. But it's an analogy. Imagine being purchased from the slave market. You are a slave. The papers are signed, the money exchanged, and the deal is sealed. And your new master takes you to his home where you will now serve him. And then a few days later, you get a knock on the door. And the old master is demanding you to come back. He's telling you you are still under bondage to him and that you still belong to him. When there's paperwork, when the transaction has been completed and you have a new, new master, I think it was Peter Forsyth said that the soul's endeavor is not to find freedom, but to find their master. And we're either in the realm of the flesh, under the slavery of sin, and under the law, or we're slaves to God. Those who would place you under law are as that the old master who takes, wants to take you back to enslave you all over again to the conflict set forth in our text. Well, we're out of time. But the conclusion we can draw to today is this. What is the normal Christian life then? If it isn't this struggle under the law with the flesh and with sin, what is the normal Christian life? And the answer is this. To serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code.
Romans 7, 6. We are to serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Remember, Paul said himself that he was not a minister of the letter, but of the new covenant. He says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, speaking of God, having made him a competent as a minister of the new covenant, quote, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul saw himself as a minister of the new covenant of the Spirit of life, not a minister of the written code of the letter, because the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. You are under a new covenant. You are in the realm of the Spirit. If you are in Christ, these things are real for you. And the normal Christian life for you is not to walk in this struggle, this defeatist struggle, but to walk in the Spirit. And you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Take hope. Take heart. Encourage yourself with this good news especially if you are coming from a tradition where you have labored hard and long under this false notion that somehow the Christian life is just this veil of tears, where sin is still your master, where the flesh is still ruling, and where the law is still haunting you. Beloved, what Paul is speaking of there in Romans 7, 7-24, he's speaking to those who know the law, and he's reminding them that life without the Spirit is miserable. It leads you only to despair. And you can have the law, but you won't be able to keep it. It's not a means of access to God. It can only turn you into a mess of a human being, a wretch of a man or a woman. So rejoice in the knowledge that you are part of a new way. Hebrews calls it a new and living way. The new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. Now next time, we will look further at our context. Romans 8, 1 through 4. We'll look again at chapter 6 as well, and we'll finish looking at chapter 8. We'll probably conclude this series in the next episode. I hope you stick with me. I hope you come back. I know sometimes in these series that there's a, a lot of response initially to the first introduction and then the uh, first episode. And by the time we get to the second and third ep episode, the attendance uh, and the responses tend to start uh, uh, tapering off. So I hope you stick with me. I, this is very important for you. Get this down. Get it really um, part of your spiritual cellular level. And then, beloved, go out and minister this grace, this good news to others who are laboring under the notion that their struggle with the flesh and the sin and law is still part of the Christian life. Help them see that it isn't. Help them be delivered from that. Help them find the joy and the freedom that is in Christ. Help them find the righteousness, the peace, and the joy that is their spiritual birthright. Until next time.
Amen.